0: Brittany Martin. William Morgan is a core maintainer of Linkerd and a co-founder of Buoyant, founders of Linkerd. Prior to Buoyant, he was an infrastructure engineer at Twitter where he helped move Twitter from monolith to microservices. He was a software engineer at PowerSet, Microsoft, and Active, and is a research scientist at MITRE. Welcome to the show, William.
1: Thanks, Brittany. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Excellent. It's great to have you here. So I'd like to kick off the show this way. Uh, William, would, would you mind telling us your developer origin story?
1: Uh, sure. Yeah. So I, you know, for whatever reason, I have always been really excited about programming, even when I was young. And I don't know how I got into it. I just kind of fell into it. And I was, you know, kind of lucky enough to be in an environment where uh, I was able to, to do that. And so by the time I was, you know, in... Even in in high school and kind of thinking about what I wanted to do in college, it was clear to me that like computer science was you know was was like the thing that I wanted to do. And I I remember I had lots of friends who didn't didn't know what they wanted to do, but for me I, I always knew like this was the one thing that I really wanted to do. And and so uh, I think you know over kind of playing it forward, I, I went through kind of this very <laughs> it's a little it's a little I went through kind of a discursive phase where uh, I was really. Um, heavy on kind of the research side of things for a while, so I was really into um, natural language processing and, and AI and machine learning and, and things like this. This was, you know, 15 years ago, before before these things were cool, right? Now, now they're cool, but at the time I was, I was, I kind of felt like a little bit of an outcast, um, but I, you know, I really enjoyed that stuff and I, I went to school for it and, you know, at some point I was like, okay, you know, I, I'm gonna go back. I'm gonna go back. I, I had some jobs that were, you know, very research focused around natu- natural language processing and machine translation, and I was like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to school. I'm gonna like get get a graduate degree, and I'm like just gonna go. My life is my life is devoted to academia, and you know, basically what happened is some number of years into into grad school, I was like, oh man, I hate this and I can't do it. But the thing that I that I love doing is programming, and I and I found myself you know, uh, instead of doing my homework and doing my research and any of that stuff, I was like writing Ruby code. And I was actually building this, uh, this is going to sound really insane. Uh, (laughs) I was was building this uh, uh, curses-based email client in Ruby um, because I wanted to have like the features of Gmail, but I didn't want to use the web UI. I was like, you know what, the only way to read your email is on the console. That's the only true way to read email and so I like built out this whole thing and anyways at some point I had this realization that geez I shouldn't be in school I should be out in this kind of burgeoning startup ecosystem around me and you know ever since that point I have just been working at, at, at startups
0: that's fantastic I mean wow reading uh, your email from console I, I think as a back-end developer I would I would definitely, I would enjoy that a lot so that makes a lot of sense. Now you've mentioned that you were building those things in, in Ruby and you've had quite a strong career in Ruby. So what drew you to that community specifically? What, what drew you to Ruby?
1: Gosh, I don't know. This was, you know, this is pretty early on. This was, I was into Ruby around the time that Rails, I think, was getting started. So this was maybe 2005 or so. I was heavily into Ruby, the language. And I don't even remember how I got into it, but it, as soon as I did, I was like, "Oh, this is the right thing for me." Like it just felt it felt right. I loved the ergonomics, um, and I think even at that point, is when I went back to school, I had the email address, which I was really proud of at the time. My email address was ruby at cs.stanford.edu. and I was like, "This is the coolest email address in the world." And the, you know, the first couple of jobs I had out of uh, after after grad school were also very Ruby focused. Uh, you know, PowerSet especially. Um, had a had a very strong Ruby focus, and then Twitter, of course, you know, <laughs> like uh, was was Ruby and, and Rails all over the place. Um, over time, I kind of like have, have shifted away from that for a variety of reasons. Um, but yeah, I, I came into into Twitter uh, as being you know a very pro Ruby uh, almost zealot, I guess I would say.
0: Oh, great. So as you mentioned with Twitter, you were both an engineer and an engineering manager at Twitter from 2010 to 2014 when Twitter was built in Rails. So can you tell us what it was like to work on the product and what features you worked on?
1: Yeah, so that was a fascinating time to be at Twitter because uh, 2010, when I joined, was kind of the summer of 2010. And that was kind of the last moments where us remaining on Rails you know and on the on the the mono the monolith we had built, which we lovingly called the monorail, or else remaining on the monorail was really a, a plausible path forward. I think it was that summer where you know we kind of had the realization as a company or as an engineering org that man we, we we've got to get off, we've got to do something else and I remember being you know kind of very vocal about why we should stay on, why Ruby was the best language, and we're going to replace this with Java, and like that sounds horrible in retrospect, you know that that transformation was. The right thing to do for for twitter and i learned a lot from it and i kind of became less of a a language zealot in that in that process Um, but it was you know i just remembered that there was a it was a world cup that summer you know and every time that someone would watch uh, sorry that you know we'd all be watching these soccer matches and every time that someone would score a goal twitter would go down
0: Oh my God! Because everyone would tweet <laughs> go, and you know,
1: and like the, the poor monorail would get overloaded, and, and so I, you know, I think maybe that was kind of one of the last moments where we we're like, all right, this is really feasible to to go forward with, and and we ended up spending you know the next say five years at least uh, doing what we lovingly called the monolith decomp or the monorail decomp, where we, we shifted you know, into this big distributed architecture uh, and off of Ruby and onto uh, primarily Scala, but also a bit of of Java in there too. And that was a, kind of a really fascinating transformation. And, and everything that, in fact, everything that I'm doing today is really based off of things that we learned in that process. And that's probably also the last time that I really wrote a line of code in in Ruby. It was the good old days of, of Twitter.
0: So we we last week we had Eileen on the show talking about upgrading GitHub from um, an older version of Rails up to the newest version of Rails, and we talked about um, you know the strategy around upgrading while still met adding new features. Now with Twitter, it's such a such a busy application, and so how was it balanced? With you know, you, you just mentioned it took years to be able to decouple. So how did that whole process work? And were were you directly involved in the de- decoupling? or Were you in charge of new features along the, li- um, along the way?
1: So I had built some uh, f- some features in Ruby you know that went into the monorail and then I was also one of the the first um, people writing kind of greenfield services so we, we moved from this monolithic architecture to, to what we called SOA at the time we now call it microservices um, but at the time we called it SOA um, We, I was one of the first engineers building uh, you know, kind of these greenfield services, and I built the 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 photos service. So every time you uploaded a, a photo through Twitter, it would go through this code that I wrote. This was back in the days. I don't know how long, I don't know how much tw- Twitter history you know, but this was back in the days before Twitter had photos itself, and people were using these companies like Yfrog and, and Twitpic and, and whatever. Oh, I
0: remember that. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. So you know, and I I I don't know if that code still lives on, but I kind of you know I, I kind of. In my in my heart, I hope that it still does. And every time someone uploads a photo to Twitter, it's still going through some code that I wrote. Um, so I was not you know in charge of that migration, but I was in you know a uh, certainly a, a, a part of it and kind of saw it from the from the vantage point of the developer who has to build these these features. And primarily, what I was building were these back end services. Um, you know, both in the monorail and and in the the new like Scala service based you know lifestyle that that we had chosen, uh, and then you know once I moved into shortly after that I moved into management and kind of was responsible for okay now we're now we're migrating these kind of bigger chunks of features and I've got these teams and they're like half you know they're split halfway between the monorail and you know the the services based land and then we introduced this thing called Mesos which was doing this like fancy scheduling across you know all the uh... The, the the data center that we had and you know, all sorts of crazy things um, oh, yeah.
0: interesting well i want to ask you one more question about twitter before we move on to what you're currently working on this one is kind of an interesting and kind of a hot topic that was in the community this year but vanity fair recently had the following quote from a twitter executive if twitter's co-founders had known what it would become a third former executive told me we never would have built it on a fisher price infrastructure so what are your thoughts on this quote about Twitter's choice to use Ruby on Rails in the, its early days?
1: I think that quote's totally wrong. I think the choice of Rails was exactly right for Twitter. And the reason why Twitter had to move off of it are not kind of normal reasons, right? Like everything, everything about Twitter is so weird and everything that, you know, both the product and the company in a lot of ways is so weird that I'm hesitant to draw any conclusions from it. Um, but I, I do know that at some point, you know, I think in the heyday of the monorail, we were handling 400,000 requests a second through Ruby on Rails, you know, th- you know, with like a um, pretty massive deployment, I think it was 3,300. Um, Machines, you know, each of them running unicorn processes and and all this stuff, and each with like a, a whole bunch of memory. Like, and, and we built a custom garbage collector for, for we were using MRI, and you know, the garbage collection was not quite right. So we invested pretty heavily in that, but we were able to make Ruby really, you know, really handle a lot of traffic. But the nature of Twitter's product, I think, there were two things combined. Um, one was the nature of Twitter's product, like, was just this kind of absurd you know, the amount of traffic coming in and also this highly asymmetric thing where you'd have, you know, one person like a celebrity who was followed by millions of people. So you had all these weird asymmetries and like, okay, this person tweeted. Now we have to like distribute that tweet to millions and millions of people. And you know, that, <laughs> so it was difficult to to handle um I think for any architecture. The other thing that people don't realize I don't know if this ever really became public or not, but at some point Twitter was running out of space in its data centers right it was the issue was not that we couldn't add you know that rails wasn't scaling rails was scaling horizontally, just fine it's just we had no more machines in the data center you know so uh yeah I think it was the right i guess that's all to say I think it was the right choice I think Twitter is a weird product and uh, and the traffic patterns were very strange and at some point it was inevitable we were going to have to move off of it but early on you know when twitter was just a, a, a dream and a toy i think choosing something else would have been would have been over engineering
0: that's awesome uh, you know that's exactly what i think our community wants to hear and i i really appreciate you answering that question because it has been such a such a topic that we've been debating lately so let's go ahead and fast forward into what you're currently working on today. So we're going to dig into Buoyant, the company behind Linkerd that you started after leaving Twitter. Can you tell us the origin story behind it?
1: Yeah. So this is actually a great segue into that. Um, you know, as I as I described, Twitter went through this very long process of moving from this monolithic Ruby on Rails architecture into microservices, and kind of uh, you know we. <laughs> what's amazing about that process is that it worked. You know, I think it's very rare to have this like company-wide initiative, where like we're going to rewrite everything from scratch, and to have that actually be successful. In fact, I don't know. This might be the only time in the history of mankind that that actually has worked. But it worked, and along the way, we learned a lot of very, very painful lessons about about doing this. Um, and and we built out we built out all these layers of infrastructure that I think were were so interesting and so transformative for Twitter that 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 made this. This big shift from monolith to microservices possible, um, and you know there was I, I had mentioned Mesos briefly, so there was this whole like notion of well we're going to have a cluster of machines, and you know rather than having you know the person in the corner with the spreadsheet who tells you okay you get these three machines, which is what Twitter was like when I joined you know in 2010, we moved to this system where we would have an orchestrator that would be moving you know kind of shuffling processes around and treating this hardware pool as just this big homogeneous pool. Uh, And that was great. That allowed you to have a lot of independence from how, uh, you know, how the machines were actually provisioned and allocated. Um, So we invested heavily in Mesos. I think Mesos was a grad student project when when we picked it up. And, you know, after a couple of years at Twitter, it was now this productionized system and and companies, entire companies have been spawned off of that. Um, We had a a kind of an incredible uh, visibility system uh, that my co-founder, Oliver Gold, worked on and was a tech lead for where you as a Twitter engineer would spend a lot of your time looking at graphs because your code was deployed to like, you know, tens or hundreds of machines and they it was serving, you know, millions of requests per second. And you had to understand the behavior system, you know, at scale. And you weren't doing that by looking at log lines, right? You were looking at uh, at graphs and, and things like that. We had this amazing kind of telemetry and a lot of the you know, uh, the very modern kind of observability-focused companies are based on very similar ideas. Um, and then finally, Twitter had this thing called uh, called Finagle, which was an open source library. Um, and what Finagle was originally was just this model for how services are gonna communicate with each other. So, you know, we've, we've gone through this process of taking our monolith and decomposing it into hundreds of services. And so now we have like service A is talking to B, is talking to C, is talking to D, is talking to the database. And it turned out that the way that those services would communicate with each other uh, was actually really tricky to get right, because you would start out right doing something very kind of very simple, right? You say, okay, well, how does my how does my browser talk to a web server? Well, mm-hmm. I uh, I make a call, mm-hmm. and if the web server times out or, you know, returns to 500, then maybe I'll retry. And then, you know, maybe I'll retry three times total and then I'll give up. And, you know, maybe if I'm gonna be really fancy, I'll, I'll put like a, you know, I'll kind of wait longer in between each retry. And so, you know, that was kind of a very natural starting point for us. And, but as soon as we did that, like all sorts of crazy things would happen. And it was very, very easy for failures in one service to rapidly escalate to the rest of the services, and end up taking out the whole the whole site, and we'd have all these crazy instances where, and I'm going to bring this back to Finagle in a second, I promise. We we just I just remember all these crazy you know events that would happen where, uh, you know, uh, so one service would go down because someone you know, someone fat fingered a command, like the, the, sure. they they like you know oh, oh crap the service is down, and then <clears throat> and then we try and stand the service back up. Okay, like <laughs> it's part of the part of the application. We got to get it back running. Every time one instance would come up, all 10,000 clients, you know, of, of that instance would immediately hammer it with traffic and it would fall over. And so we couldn't actually revive that service. Okay, so let's, you know, let's instead kill the services that are talking to the service, and then we can bring this one up. But then we can't bring those up because we have to kill the services that are talking to them. So you just end up in these in these kind of Kafka esque situations. Um, and all of those all of those lessons that we learned all got encoded into finagle which was the core library that we were using to communicate between the services so you as a developer you know you're you'd you'd be presented with this kind of very nice programmatic api you'd say hey i'm service a i want to talk to service b like hey finagle go make that call and give me back the request and under the hood finagle was doing you know all this fancy load balancing or request level load balancing it was you know, talking to service discovery, it had all this logic about how if service discovery was uh, you know, was down or was up but was empty, okay, then don't trust it because probably someone made a mistake and instead just rely on the cached behavior and periodically check in. It had like all of these features that were built, you know, in, in many ways from kind of a horrific series of incidents that we had. Um, so when uh, Oliver and I. So uh, my my co-founder Oliver, who I mentioned, you know, he, he and I were both engineers at, at Twitter. He was very heavily in the in the infrastructure space and and was a contributor to Finagle. I was much more on the kind of consumer of Finagle. I was a happy customer of his. Um, <laughs> when we when we left Twitter, you know, we had this idea that everything that Twitter had just gone through and all those lessons and all that technology that we had built were going to be useful to the rest of the world. And that was kind of the core. Motivation for starting point we didn't we didn't want the rest of the world to have to discover those same things.
0: No, that makes a lot of sense. You probably had a lot of lessons from really deploying an application at very large scale. I just took a glance and Finagle is alive and kicking. It was just uh, just updated five hours ago, so we'll certainly link to it in the show <laughs> notes. So that's that's Good. great news. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. yeah. So you know, for us, Finagle was like a great starting point, but we Finagle was kind of two things. Finagle was uh, it was like this programming API. It was this beautiful model for you know, and, and because this was all written in Scala, you know, we wanted to have this like functional programming like model of the world where you know you'd ex- you'd have futures and you'd have promises and you'd be able to like compose all these things together in this cool functional programming way. Uh, so Finagle was that programming model, and it was also this operational model. And for us, you know, we we were like, well, we can't we can't convince people to actually use Finagle, because in order to use Finagle, you have to be writing Scala, or you have to be in Java, or you have to be, you know, on the JVM. But all the operational benefits of Finagle, right, all the all the retries and circuit breaking and, and timeouts and load balancing and service discovery, well, that we can give to you, and we can actually give it to you in kind of a proxy form.
0: Gotcha. So we'll, and that actually, that slides nicely into the next yeah. question that I'm going to ask you. So... How would you pitch Linkerd to an audience of Ruby on Rails developers, which actually happen to be listening to this podcast? Um, what needs does it solve for these developers?
1: Yeah, so right now we've kind of evolved from those those early Finagle you know Finagle days. What Linkerd does today is, if you are deploying your Ruby code in a uh, microservices environment, and especially if you're using something like Kubernetes. Mm-hmm. Um, then what Linkerd will give you is extremely powerful telemetry and reliability and also security kind of mechanics without you having to change your code. Mm -hmm.
0: Because the
1: way it works is all those proxies get inserted alongside your code, and it doesn't ultimately matter whether you're using Ruby or not, but all of your calls will go through these little lightweight Linkerd proxies and we'll measure the success rate of everything, and we'll, you know, retry when things are going wrong, and we'll do circuit breaking, and we'll just add all these kind of operational layers. And so as a result, your app will stay up, you know, even if there are little partial failures, they won't escalate to take down the entire app. You'll have lots of visibility. <coughs> Excuse me. You'll have lots of visibility into everything that's happening. It's just a whole bunch of uh, benefits we can give to you without you having to actually change your code.
0: That makes sense. And so, you know, a lot of, you know, Ruby on Rails devs are holding, you know, they're wearing a lot of hats. So they're doing everything from UX to front-end to back-end and including DevOps. So it sounds really like having Linkerd D in your toolbox as a Ruby on Rails developer, you're just going to get a lot more insight as, to, as you're deploying that application out um, for free, really. Like, I mean, it, it just sounds like it, it's pretty easy to set up and really get it deployed out. So, I mean, it looks like a really fabulous product.
1: Yeah, for us, like we just have a lot of empathy for, for developers who are, you know, often kind of put in these situations where it's like, okay, we're using Kubernetes now. Like, everyone get on board and you know, make things work. And we're and and you know we're kind of like, well gosh, you know, that it sounds really easy, but when you actually deploy, you know, five services or ten, never mind a hundred, just like a handful, you run into issues really, really quickly and, and that's what we want to be able to, to help.
0: Excellent. So there are, as you mentioned, there are a lot of competitors in the container space. So why did you decide to commit to Kubernetes?
1: Yeah, I think that that, that was pretty easy for us. Well, so, so first I'll say Kubernetes is uh, an area of focus, but we do support other platforms. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's two versions of Linkerd and it's kind of like a slightly different story between those two versions. Um, but most of the adoption that we have seen with Linkerd has been in the context of Kubernetes. And so for us it's not like a it's not like a moral choice or anything. We're just going it's just a data-driven choice. We're going to where people are using this the most.
0: Okay. And so what does it mean that Linkerd is a cloud native computing foundation project?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. So the the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, or the CNCF, is a. Uh, it's kind of like the Apache Software Foundation. There's, it's one of these kind of open source hosting foundations. Um, it is the foundation that hosts Kubernetes and Prometheus and a bunch of other cloud native um, projects in the space, in addition to Linkerd. And so for us, it just felt like the right home. You know, we are a buoyant is a is a startup, but the Project this open source project that that we're building and that we're um, sponsoring has to be a first class open source citizen, right? It can't be like we hold back these certain features and you have to pay money for this because like this is what you need in production. Like this has got to be a full fledged, fully open source project. And so for us, having a home like the CNCF has been valuable, just in in kind of. Uh, as a way of showing the world, look, this is, you know, it's a neutral party and they own the IP and they own the trademark and they own the code. And Buoyant is a, you know, obviously we we have, a we're heavily invested in Linkerd because we're spending all of our precious life juices, like, building (laughs) this thing. Um, But it is a cloud native computing foundation project and it's not a Buoyant project. And I think that's a big, you know, that's a big difference for, for folks who want to adopt open source, but are always a little wary of like, Okay, it's open source in name only, which can happen with some projects. Yes, and it could
0: go away or, you know, I mean, that that happens. And just by being a CNCF project, I I would see that as a developer and be like, this project's here to stay, this project has support, this project's part of an ecosystem. So I think those are all positive things.
1: Yeah, yeah. And we also spend a lot of our time getting other people involved in the project. It, you know, it doesn't have to be just us, and in fact it's not. We've gotten an amazing set of contributions from all sorts of interesting companies, including Walmart and Comcast and Salesforce and you know, a lot of startups, so it's been really exciting for us to see this open source community grow.
0: Well, um you've done such a good job of leading me into my next questions. I, I think you're a professional at this at this point, but <laughs> being that Linkerd is open source, um, how can our listeners get involved in the project?
1: Yeah, so there's there's a couple of easy ways. The first is you can go to linkerd.io and just try it. We make it as dirt simple to actually install and run as possible. Uh, assuming assuming you have kubernetes for other environments it's a little harder unfortunately but if you can get a little kubernetes cluster running using even if it's minikube or or docker for mac or something that's running on your laptop you can install linkerd in about 30 seconds and just start playing around with it uh, and you know if if, the, if you have questions or feedback certainly please send that our way the best way to do that is through github so linkerd is all up on github there's a linkerd GitHub org, and a couple repos under there. There's one repo for the 1.x branch, and one repo for the 2.x branch, and a bunch of other kind of ancillary projects. Just file issues, Uh, we also have, uh, you know, well, file issues contribute PRs, that would be great. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) And then we have a very active Slack channel, uh, which you can find a link to from there, but I think you can just go to slack.linkerd.io, and there's like a little inviter. Um, and then we've got a mailing list and you know kind of all the trappings of a, of a real open source project and we love new contributors um, The control plane now. Well, I actually haven't talked about what languages Linkerd is written in.
0: Yeah, yeah, go for it
1: So this is this is uh, It's not Ruby. So I, I kind of half apologize for that.
0: That's um, all right <laughs> <laughs> You but, support Ruby so it's yeah, cool. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's right. That's right. It's and and more than support it. We love Ruby um, but the, So there's kind of two parts to, to Linkerd, there's a control plane and then there's a data plane. The data plane are the, are the proxies, which are actually embedded next to the application code and it's important for them to be as fast as possible and as safe as possible because these are, you know, what your actual bytes are flowing through uh, and as small in terms of memory footprint as possible because you're deploying, you know, hundreds or thousands of those and those proxies are written in Rust Rust is another really nice community and I think there's there's a fair amount of kind of emotional overlap between the Rust community and the Ruby community, which which I've appreciated. Um, and then Linkerd's control plane is written in Go. And Go is kind of a horrible language if you're coming from Ruby, because Ruby is very, you know, rich and expressive and beautiful and, and Go is like you know, there's there's no beauty, there's only like concrete everywhere. I've written in it of, before. Right. It's, so definitely it's kind a of painful. Change. Um, yes, but but it, what it's is fast. nice about, yeah, yeah, that's right. And, and the barrier to entry tends to be pretty low to go, certainly compared to Rust.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so that's, that's actually been helpful for us as well.
0: Excellent. Well, uh, William, how can our listeners follow you, Boyant, and Linkerd?
1: Uh, well, as you, as you might expect, Twitter is like a great place to, to do that. So uh, Linkerd has a Twitter handle, it's at Linkerd, uh, with all sorts of Linkerd related stuff. Uh, You can find me on Twitter. I'm at WM. And then uh, you can also follow Buoyant, but it's kind of mostly just retweets, linkerd stuff at this point.
0: Uh, That's an incredibly impressive Twitter handle, but I am not shocked by that.
1: (laughs) It's it's one of the benefits of getting in early.
0: Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the show today, William. As always, if you have any feedback, please reach out to me on Twitter, uh, Britt J. Martin, which I'll link in the show notes, and we'll catch you next week. Thank you. (laughs) well.